Thank you for joining us today and a big thank you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. Karen and I have been trialing their designs for a few months and we can happily recommend them. All designs are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Today we're talking about plantar fasciitis, which accounts for approximately 10% of all running-related injuries. We're going to be sharing the risk factors and triggers for the condition, and also some anti-inflammatory nutrients and food ideas to support your healing and recovery. Hello and welcome to She Runs, Eats, Performs, the podcast for female runners of all abilities. Please join Karen Campbell and Aileen Smith, nutritionists, friends and runners, who are here to help you translate sports nutritional science into easy to apply tips and plans, helping you enjoy peak running performance. And especially adding in the female factors every woman needs to know to be a healthy runner. The suggestions we make during this episode are for guidance and advice only, and are not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. If you have any concerns regarding your health, please contact your healthcare professional for advice as soon as possible. If you'd like help from Karen and Ailey to design a personalised sports nutrition plan for your running, please contact them at Runners Health Hub. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Karen, and I'm here once again with Aileen. And as always, we're going to share something personal with you about our nutrition or running before we move on to discuss today's topic, which is focusing on plantar fasciitis, so nutrition for feet. So, Aileen, today's question to you is, do you have any personal experience of plantar fasciitis? Uh, Yes, unfortunately, I do. Um, And I think people might have heard me talking about it over the last year. Um, So last spring during lockdown, I I started to experience really a lot of pain, particularly in the soles of my feet, um, whenever I walked or or ran anywhere. Um, It got to the point I really could only run on grassy surfaces because I found road running too painful. So that was quite difficult really to always make sure I was on grass um, and obviously because we were in lockdown I wasn't able to consult with a podiatrist um, so I had to do a lot of self-help. Um, I read a lot, I listened to a lot of podcasts, watched videos, uh, I did my best to try and resolve the pain um, but the first thing I did when we were free even before the hairdresser I think was go to um, see a podiatrist and um, I took their advice and sort of 12 months on, um, I'm fine. Um, but uh, yeah, it was not a, not a pleasant experience. And um, I know I'll share a bit more probably as we talk. Um, but what about you, Karen? Have you had plantar fasciitis or have you had any clients who've experienced it? 
Actually, I haven't had any clients with it, more Achilles issues actually with clients, but I've had a form of it. Um, And interestingly, the pain for me was across the top of my foot. So from that area, um, from the little toe to the big toe, so across that way, and I didn't think it was plantar fasciitis. In fact, I wasn't sure exactly what it was, uh, because I always thought that plantar fasciitis was felt from say the toe to to the heel that's all on that inside of the foot so I thought this can't be that's what I didn't even enter my head about plantar fasciitis so I thought I'm gonna have to go and um and get it investigated because it wasn't healing it wasn't getting any better and the way I am I tend to keep running until I'm forced to stop so um I was forced to stop I went and had it investigated and um and I was told that it was plantar fasciitis and I was thinking really (laughs) they said yeah and explained that there that there is that plantar fascia that goes over the top of the of the foot um and and like I said I did have to take some time out of running um but thankfully not for too long it did it did heal up quite quickly for me which was really good and I don't know if that was because of where it was on the foot that it maybe healed more quickly than quite often and plantar fasciitis does so um so yeah so we've both experienced daily so we can talk from experience during this uh this yeah, episode we certainly can yes yeah so carrying on there and and sort of moving into the topic plantar fasciitis is a common health issue actually amongst the general population generally um and it is thought that around about 15 percent of um, adult food complaints uh, are from plantar fasciitis and runners are in the at-risk group with a prevalence apparently of um, around 21% and um, and about 10% of all running related foot injuries. So really interesting uh, statistics there. And plantar fasciitis usually develops with, with repeated impact or pressure, which over time causes potentially causes damage to the tissue in the foot so so really it's easy to see I suppose why running could contribute to this condition because of this constant pressure that we put on our feet Um, and it's thought that with sort of conservative management roughly about 80% of cases can be resolved within the 12-month period, which is exactly what happened for you, Aileen. Once you got the the, the appropriate treatment, it then healed uh, within that 12 months. Um, And then as runners, we we would need to immediately consider consulting with a a physiopodiatist, really, um, if we had any of the, the signs or the symptoms. And uh, and we certainly would recommend that you did that. Um, but today, what we'd like to do is really raise your awareness about the condition uh, and, and ask you maybe to consider how your nutrition could um, be used to support you in that recovery and healing or maybe as a preventative measure. So so what we're going to do today is we're going to um to tell you a little bit about what is plantar fasciitis, what are the risk factors and triggers for runners to be aware of regarding plantar fasciitis. Focus on that inflammatory aspect of it and how nutrition could be utilised as part of the recovery and prevention strategy. And then we'll give you some ideas of how you could put some of the food ideas into action to help you prevent, manage and recover from plantar fasciitis. So Aileen, 
could you tell us a little bit about plantar fasciitis? Yeah, sure. So um, it's a condition that occurs when the plantar fascia, the tissue that connects your toes to your heel, becomes damaged or torn. And and it's it's a condition, as you said earlier, Karen, it's commonly experienced by runners and and it does cause extreme pain to the bottom of the feet and the heel. And I think, as you said, it's probably a little bit different for everybody. So it's often quite a bit difficult to diagnose. You know, one of the things I read was it happens first thing in the morning and it didn't happen to me. Uh, It was when I was out running, it happened. You know, that was the problem or when I was walking anywhere. Um, So, you know, rest is, is often... Uh, prescribed and as being essential if you've damaged your plantar fascia but that is really difficult because you know none of us can stop walking or standing Mm. um but you know rest is 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 an important component of recovery um but i really feel prevention in the first place is the best way to protect your feet um stretching it properly is a really important factor um and also you know as we're going to talk about today diet can play an important role. Um, now, you know, if you, if you listen to um, physical therapists, what they would say is that the problem starts higher, higher than your feet. So it's, um, you know, making sure that the, um, the muscles and the tendons in your calves, Achilles, all the way through your legs are properly stretched. And if you do that, then you're not going to have the knock-on effect in your plantar. Um, it is thought that the inflammatory component of, of plantar fascia is the result of a prolonged loading of the tissue. And that's what the thing that perpetuates the inflammatory cycle. Um, now, we know that inflammation is, is really important and it's an important part of the healing process. Um, and it's But it's thought with plantar fasciitis that the healing response um, results in a production of new connective tissue in in the feet, and that might be laid down in a sort of a disorganized fashion, and that what that's the thing that causes the formation of adhesion and thickening of the plantar fascia, and it's a believed that the thickness of the plantar fascia is related to the pain levels experienced. Oh, that's really interesting, Eileen. I wasn't aware of that that there was this sort of. Um, this disorganized laying down of of um sort of the tissue and then the thickening of it and that's what was leading to the pain so what appears to be the the principal triggers for plantar fasciitis yeah well the triggers um that, that i've read about appear to be things like changes in activity so perhaps having a new type of exercise activity or a change in intensity. And you can relate that to a runner. You might add in different things and and maybe that's a trigger. Uh, We've already talked about the tight calf muscles or having an Achilles injury. Um, Also, um, new footwear or old footwear. So is new footwear appropriate? Is old footwear worn out? Is it supporting your feet and your running and your physique overall? Um, weight gain or maybe being overweight now something I read about weight gain is not necessarily unhealthy weight gain you might put on muscle and you you, you might be uh, just a bit heavier and that could be something that you know is a contributory trigger and then and finally you know we've got this chronic inflammation which might be driving the ongoing symptoms and we can talk a bit more Karen about mm inflammation I think later on in the conversation yeah absolutely and it, it looks as though that you know the 
there are potentially quite a few different contributing factors to the development of plantar fasciitis. And did any of these triggers apply to you, Aileen? Yeah, well, you know, when things happen, you always look back, don't you? Think, how could this happen to me? Um, I, I do remember um, the summer before I got plantar fasciitis. I remember this quite distinctly because I was in Edinburgh and uh, it was during the fringe, and I was doing a lot of walking about. And I'd bought some lightweight, sort of everyday shoes. Um, I won't mention the brand, but they are a really popular brand in the UK. I've never had them before. Uh, and as I say, I tromped, you know, I tromped through the streets of Edinburgh. And I remember thinking, actually, my feet are hurting. And I thought, these shoes aren't really doing me any good. And and I did ditch them and I got a different pair of shoes, a brand that I'm more familiar with. And, and then I forgot about it. Um, then later on, you know, six months later, um, you might remember I broke my wrist. And so I had a few months where I couldn't do the restorative type of exercise that I would normally do. So couldn't do yoga, couldn't do Pilates. And I always think that is something that counteracts, you know, the, the other things that I do. And it, it keeps my limbs and my ligaments stretched. Um, so I had a few months of not been able to do that. And then we went into lockdown. And that was when I had the flare up. And I think that the tightness in my lower limbs was definitely a contributor and probably it all started, you know, the summer before. And so it was a bit of a domino effect over time. Mm. And, you know, I'm always really wishing that I never bought those shoes in the first place. So that's, yeah. that's my thought. Yeah, it is interesting, Aileen, that, that that one change was the catalyst to several other um uh, differences occurring or changes occurring and then it just sort of over time that inflammatory response sort of fed into um the plantar fasciitis but but yeah that principally that unsupportive shoes in the beginning and then the tight muscles because you weren't able to do your stretching were the two key triggers for you mm. and and I think that it, your situation also demonstrates how plantar fasciitis is really a condition that develops over time. It's not just immediate. It's it's sort of a build up, a build up. And over time, the pain becomes more and more severe. And I think particularly in runners, um, because it is considered to be a, a, an overuse injury. So um, and I think these are, are some of the triggers um, that we've spoken about. So maybe we could think about some of the risk factors. And I think it is always a bit tricky to separate triggers from risk factors. Um, however, the main risk factors, I think, for developing uh, plantar fasciitis are considered to be the running, as we've been speaking about, but also high foot arches as well, um, excessive foot pronation, um, either inwards or outwards, that weak plantar flexor muscle, so that the ones that run along the bottom of the foot. Like you were saying, Aileen, the overweight and obesity um, are potential risk factors. And also sort of prolonged standing or, or walking could potentially um, sort, of, sort of be a risk factor for it developing. Yeah, all, all very relevant, Karen. And I think just listening to you talking about those risk factors, the thing that's running through my mind is that, 
you know, when when we're a runner, we want to be able to run as much as we choose to. Um, so I think the key really is to treat those risk factors as modifiable, um, that, you know, we can modify them with exercise, with the right footwear and with nutrition, and that would reduce the risk of uh, getting plantar fasciitis in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I would totally agree with that. I think awareness is important, but then taking some conscious preventative action is key as well. Um, as none of us wish to put our running on hold whilst we recover, you know, the prevention is always better than cure. So Aileen, you touched on the inflammatory aspect of um, plantar fasciitis a bit earlier and how nutrition could support the recovery, but also that prevention. Could you maybe expand uh, a little bit more on that now? Yeah, sure. So um, in previous episodes, we have talked about the immune system uh, frequently, uh, and in particular, the role of acute inflammation in the healing process. You know, it's a really important thing uh, for us. So acute inflammation occurs when in response really to an infection or an injury, and immune cells identify a stressor. So that's usually an, an infection or an injury. And those immune cells take action to resolve the issue. And uh, pro-inflammatory mediators, so things like histamine, cytokines, acosinoids, and prostaglandins, all help um, increase blood flow and, and vascular permeability around the site of infection or injury. And that enables the pro-inflammatory immune cells to do their job. Um, and this is known as the inflammation initiation phase. And if you've ever had an injury or an infection, you might have noticed uh, redness, heat, swelling, maybe a bit of pain, uh, some loss of function during this phase. And that's really a natural, healthy thing that's going on because it's helping you start the healing process. And then following on from that, um, the next phase is called the inflammation resolution phase. And that's where the tissue repair and healing takes place and the body returns back to a normal balanced state. But sometimes what happens is there's an inappropriate activation of these responses, and that can lead to a, a sort of persistent pro-inflammatory state, and that's known as chronic inflammation. And, and in this instance, the, the resolution phase is prolonged, and some, you know it can take weeks or months, and sometimes just is always ongoing, and you never properly uh, recover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just sort of expanding on that chronic inflammation um, that you spoke about, Aileen, there is also a state of inflammation known as systemic chronic inflammation, um, which is thought to develop as a result of a number of contributors, which are sort of different for everybody, clearly. And examples are the likes of physical activity, but also smoking exposure to environmental pollutants, also medication, stress, poor diets, the list goes on really. Now, if a person is in a state of this systemic chronic inflammation, then it's possible that the immune system might not respond appropriately when there is an injury or an infection because it's it's focused on dealing with this ongoing systemic chronic inflammation. Now, plantar fasciitis is a chronic condition um, which takes time to resolve. So, again, if you are 
experiencing plantar fasciitis, you might want to consider your overall inflammatory status and how this could potentially be contributing to the development and the ongoing and the persistence of the plantar fasciitis. Yeah, so, you know, listeners who are with us today might be wondering, well, how do I know if if I've got chronic inflammation and what do I do to help me uh, recover from plantar fasciitis? So, you know, if I put my nutritional therapist hat on uh, for a moment, Karen, what I would say is, you know, personally, I'd be making an assessment based on a person's health status, their ability to heal and recover in a, in a timely way. Um, so, you know, that's meaning that they are healing, you know, relatively quickly in, in the time that you would expect. And I'd also look at uh, what they were eating, what they were drinking, were they smoking, and what their exposures to toxins were. And so we'd be looking at all of these different things and, and what potential contributors to all of that could be modified to help them with their inflammation status. Now, you could also think about doing some testing. Um, So there are some uh, nutritional biomarkers which uh, are associated with um, high inflammatory biomarkers. So you can't actually do a test to say I've got chronic inflammation. It's it's more of an assessment of what's going on. Um, But there are some tests which would indicate uh, that there, there might be an issue. Um, so a test such as the um, omega-3 index, uh, vitamin D status, and serum magnesium status. So all of those, if, if you've got low um, results on those testers, that would indicate that um, you might have high inflammatory biomarkers. Um, and also, if, if you were sort of in a medical setting, um, tests might measure something called um, high sensitive C reactive protein. Um, now, this is something that um, is uh, a marker to indicate that there's inflammation somewhere in your body. Um, it's not necessarily a marker of systemic um, inflammation, it's more of a marker of acute inflammation. Um, but again, you know, it would be a way of telling that something was going on. So tests can be helpful. They're not always necessary. And as I say, you know, sometimes it's a case of looking at your overall health and well-being and seeing what you can do to help modify a situation to to move forward. Um, and I think, you know, having done all of that, uh, nutritionally, the approach regarding having an anti-inflammatory food plan would really be consider what you could add to your food plan and what you might remove or minimize uh, from your food plan or from your environment to help support your inflammation status. Yeah, and in bu- building on that sort of removing or minimizing or adding, our, our suggestions would broadly be sort of adding in sort of low GL carbohydrate foods, also um, adding in more omega-3 rich foods. So thinking about the oily fish and the nuts and seeds, uh, ensuring that your uh, any meats are organic and grass-fed, non-farmed fish, increasing your intake of legumes and, and ensuring that you're 
you're having a wide range of vegetables and some fruit every day and just trying to keep the fruit and vegetables pesticide free as far as possible. And then sort of thinking about removing or at least minimising your intake of fried foods, the refined grains, so the white grains, sugar, also any processed meats or ultra processed foods or, or any food additives, trying to eat as naturally as possible. And for some people, also thinking about that removing or minimising at least dairy and gluten um, foods because they are considered inflammatory. So for some people, they may need to be removed as well. And really the aim of having this approach nutritionally is to provide your body with the nutrients it requires to support the immune system in that healing and repairing. And at the same time, you're removing the burden of certain foods which could be contributing to that chronic inflammation. So we'll talk a little bit about some specific food suggestions later um, in our conversation as we go through. So we, you know, we haven't found any studies which focus on nu nutrition specifically for plantar fasciitis. So what we're doing today is we're really sharing our approach to applying the nutritional research around inflammation generally. And we believe that really this this could support you in reducing any chronic inflammation that you may have, which could be potentially delaying your ability to recover from the plantar fasciitis. So that's the approach that we're taking today. So before we move on, Aileen, and look at um, sort of specific foods to support the um, inflammatory process, shall we just take a short advert break? Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, this is the point in the episode where Karen and I take a minute to talk to you about what we do outside of uh, the podcast. So one of the things we do is run an online um, program called Easy Nutrition for Healthy Runners. Um, that came about because, you know, we, we just like you, we're busy working women, we run for health, fitness, achievement, and a bit of fun along the way. Um, but we've had our own personal running performance struggles and injuries to recover from. And uh, we've managed to resolve those struggles with a foundational everyday healthy eating plan. And we fine tune it with sports nutrition principles. And that really helps us maximize our running performance and minimize injury. And what we did was we, we've taken everything that we do ourselves and we've created it into uh, the Easy Nutrition for Healthy Runners program. So it's a short and sweet uh, video program. You can complete it in 30 minutes a day over two weeks, or indeed you can spread it out and take as long as you need to to complete the, um, the videos. And they're there for you to use as a refresher whenever you want. So if you've been listening today and you'd like to know more about how to apply both everyday nutrition alongside sports-specific nutrition, this program is a really great place to give you lots of information and some easy action steps too. So if you'd like to find out more, visit our website, which is runnershealthhub.com. Look at the top menu bar. You'll find details of the program. And if you've got any questions about the program, please feel free to email us at hello at runnershealthhub.com. And to say thank you to you as one of our valued listeners, we have a special offer for you to use a coupon code um, to get a discount. So that code is POD, P-O-D, and that will give you a 33% discount off the full price, which brings the price down to £199. 
and you'll find the details in our show notes too. So we'd, we'd love to see you in the program. And if you've got any questions, do let us know. Excellent. Thank you, Aileen. So now we just wanted to move on and focus on some ideas really of how you could add some specific foods into your diet to support your immune system and sort of help regulate any sort of systemic chronic inflammation that um, may be going on. Now, we have talked about the immune system in um, various different episodes already, including episode 14, which was um, endurance running and the immune system, episode 17, um, nutrition for running injury, and also episode 26, nutrition for soft tissue injury. So there is a lot of information um, for you to look back on. So today, what we thought we would do would be a little more specific and um, and, and look at certain, certain approaches. Now, one study that we um, were looking at recommended eating eight servings of um, carotenoid-rich foods each day for four weeks um, to support the reduction of inflammation. And um, participants in this study were asked to follow um, um, this diet. And what they found was that they had an increased plasma carotenoid concentration and then but it helped to lower that c-reactive protein levels that we were that we mentioned earlier compared with participants who consumed only two portions per day now examples of of um, vegetables that contain carotenoids they're the likes of the carrots the broccoli the courgettes um tomatoes brussels sprouts red cabbage it goes on and on and then sort of thinking about the the fruits things like apples and pears peaches and cherries strawberries red currants so there's lots of different foods out there that um that that could be included in your diet so um but like i say the study was recommending um eight servings per day of these foods yeah, and I think when, you know, we get sort of suggestions of saying have eight portions or eight servings, people immediately think, I can't do that. And it does sound a lot of servings, mm. but it can be achieved. And I thought um, I could just break down some ideas, Karen. So I was thinking, you know, if, if you were somebody who wanted to add in the eight servings a day, you could do that by maybe adding a portion of cherries or strawberries to your breakfast. So maybe to porridge or, or some yogurt. Um, and then at lunchtime, perhaps having um, a, a homemade soup with um, carrot, spinach and broccoli. Um, and then you could have a side dish of courgettes and tomatoes as part of your main meal in the evening. And then perhaps add a couple of pieces of fruit as snacks during the day. So if you, you can see by doing that, you know, you're getting your eight or nine portions in. And particularly for, for this, you, you're focusing on those carotenoid rich, rich foods. Yeah, those are really good ideas, Aileen, because like you say, it does seem like a, you know, to, to, when you hear it, it does sound like an, an awful lot of, of food. You think, how on earth am I going to fit that into my daily diet? But when you break it down like that, it is actually quite doable. And um, and my next suggestion, thinking about the immune, supporting the immune system, um, again, still linked to, to sort of vegetables, is around increasing the cruciferous vegetables. So that's vegetables like cauliflower, cabbage, broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts as well. Now, some studies suggest that eating lightly cooked 
uh, cruciferous vegetables does actually contribute to the reduction of um, inflammatory markers. So Aileen, um, sort of looking at your wonderful ideas that you've just spoken about, how would you suggest people add in cruciferous vegetables to their food plan? Yeah, well, people always either love them or hate them. So you have to be very creative, I think, when it comes to cruciferous vegetables. Um, but I love making soups uh, with things like cauliflower, kale and broccoli. Sometimes a mixture, I'll put all three in. Um, I think stir uh, stir frying these vegetables or steaming them is a good way to have them um, and make them tasty by adding things like lemon, lime, ginger, chili, um, it can just add a little bit of zest um, and tastiness mm-hmm. to them. Um, doing things like oven-baked kale is great as a crunchy snack. You know, you can either have it as a snack or you can uh, sprinkle it over vegetable dishes or salads. Um, I quite like making a raw cauliflower rice or a sort of couscous-style salad. Um, cauliflowers are great for roasting um, and broccoli is as well. So, you know, you can either roast a cauliflower whole or you can maybe do a, a sort of a roasted uh, cauliflower florette type of dish with curry style spices and onions. That's that's really a nice thing to do. Um, so as I said, you know, if you are thinking, I don't really like those vegetables, it's it's a case of getting inventive so that you can have lots of variety. And, um, you know, if you don't like plain broccoli, you know, zip them up so that you do like them that's what I would say yeah yeah I think those are really good suggestions because you are making them sound really appealing um and and like you say just adding some ginger or chili is just going to kind of fire them up a bit rather than just sort of some soggy broccoli on the side of your plate so um so everybody give give it give those um, ideas a try and see how you get on but um let's now move on and talk about Uh, anthocyanin-rich foods now. So you'll find them in foods such as berries, thinking about blueberries, raspberries, cranberries, also blackcurrants and and strawberries. Now, it's thought that 150 grams of um, berries contain around 300 milligrams of these anthocyanins. And you know, if they're consumed at this level regularly, can help to reduce the inflammatory markers such as the C-reactive protein that Aileen spoke about, but also other ones known as interleukin-6 and um, tumor necrosis factor alpha as well. So um, just consuming them on a regular basis may help to reduce these, these inflammatory markers. Yeah, and I think probably everybody's thinking, well, what what's 150 grams of berries look like? So um, I did my measuring, Karen, so that I could yeah. <laughs> tell you. So um, I um, I've discovered that if you have a half a cup of berries, that roughly measures out to 150 grams. It was sort of like a slightly heaped cup, a heaped half a cup. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a reasonable portion. It's not too big. Um, it's the kind of portion that you could add to porridge or overnight oats or to a pot of natural yogurt. Um, and I think the other positive aspect of eating berries is that they're also low GL fruits. So you can have a large portion, you know, you could have double that if you wanted, and it's not going to have an effect on your blood sugar balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's something that people could easily do most Absolutely. days. Um, you could have a bag of frozen berries in the freezer and, um, you know, eat them easily every day. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really good point, in the fact that they are low GL, so you can eat quite a lot of them and it's not going to affect the, the, the blood sugar balance. So that's a real win-win, isn't it? You've got the anthocyanins, but you're also maintaining your blood sugar balance at the same time. Mm. So just moving on, there's a, an area which um, I find has been quite well researched um, is the role of what's known as specialised pro-resolving mediators, also known as SPMs for short. And these SPMs are produced in the body from um, long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And the different classes of SPMs work together to actively resolve inflammation. So um, these SPMs are involved in balancing the inflammatory response. So following the inflammation initiation phase, they reduce the pro-inflammatory cells entering the area and promote more anti-inflammatory cells being um, being produced. So this really helps with the, the tissue repair and resolving that low-grade chronic inflammation. So quite powerful um, mediators. Um, so Aileen, could you, thinking about that, could you maybe outline the nutrients involved in this resolution process? Yeah, well, Really, they all belong to the omega-3 family of long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is quite a long, a long <laughs> sentence to say. Um, and, um, you know, they're the ones that are involved in the production of the different series of SPMs that you talked about. Um, so specifically, um, EPA, DHA and DPA. So they're um, part of the omega-3 family. And um, you'll find that the dietary sources of um, of these, the EPA, DHA and DPA, are mostly from oily fish and from some grass-fed animal products such as dairy and meat. Um, so it's worth just mentioning, because people may have read about this, is that the body can convert ALA, which is another omega three fatty acid from plant sources. Um, so it can convert that into um, EPA and DHA, but the conversion isn't really that efficient. So people who follow a vegetarian or a plant-based food plan might want to consider supplementing with an EPA or DHA supplement um, and choosing um, the vegan source, which is derived from the microalgae. Um, so, as I said, um, the DPA is also found in the fish oils and the grass-fed animal products, but it's in smaller quantities than EPA and DHA. So I think really the main point here is to consider, are you consuming an optimal amount of omega-3 fatty acids in your food or supplement plan? Um, and the, the reason for that is you need to be providing your body with the nutrients required to create these SPMs that we've been talking about. Um, so, Karen, I mean, I know that, you know, you follow a vegetarian food plan. So how do you go about making sure that you get these, you know, optimal omega-3 fatty acids, particularly from the, the ones that traditionally we think of came from fish oils? 
Yeah, exactly. So I do try and consume sort of flaxseed, hemp seed, chia seed as well, actually. Um, the, the hemp and flax I, I, um, I'll I use in oil form, uh, although sometimes I'll sprinkle flaxseed on food as well. And then chia, I'll maybe make into a chia pudding or something like that. And I also love walnuts, which is another source. Um, and I, I tend to have those on a fairly regular basis. But um you know these are all great choices but I do know that it's still not sufficient on a on a daily basis so I do take a a vegan supplement like you were saying Aileen which is derived from the the microalgae and the company that I use is Minami they do like a vegan DHA and um, and that's the one that that I take regularly yeah good good question Karen Mm, yeah, yeah. And I think it is, you know, especially as a, as a as a vegan, also as a vegetarian, it is important to consider your omega-3 levels. So, Eileen, just to round up there, I, I wondered if you'd um, share what your um, plantar fasciitis recovery plan um, included, because clearly you were sort of trying to support it on your own for quite a long time. And and from a nutritional um, advice point of view, is there maybe one easy action point that you could suggest to to help our listeners, to help our runners who suspect that they might have plantar fasciitis? Yeah, so, um, you know, thinking back, Karen, as I said at the, at the beginning, I really did as much self-help as I could nutritionally. So all of the things that we've been talking about, um, I I did. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that people could, you know, easily deal with if they were in that situation is to consider their omega-3 status and, um, you know, perhaps... Um, think about supplementing you know for a short period of time to help them through that healing process so that would be a nutritional action point Mm. Um, so the other things that I did was um, I did a lot of foot rolling with a ball Um, so I've got a a hard ball at the side of the bed and I rolled it rolled my feet as soon as I got up in the morning Um, I've got a little foot roller uh, which is in the living room and I used that in the evening while I was watching tv I did loads and loads of foot exercises um, and as I say I added the fish oil supplements to my plan and then as soon as I was out of lockdown as I said earlier the first thing I did was make an appointment to see a podiatrist now she you know assessed me she suggested some therapeutic exercises and she also suggested orthotics now I know there's mixed views about orthotics and you know I, I read and heard quite a lot of them uh, many physios say that you shouldn't need them and that you should be able to um you know do the exercises and and that will help you recover uh and certainly I would would have preferred just to do that but I think maybe I was in quite a difficult situation and and after months I was desperate to run and walk again without pain it was really stopping me doing what I wanted to do um, and I felt I tried a lot of things myself so I, I did go down the orthotics route and um, you know it was a bit of an investment but it was for me it was worth it and it took a few months to fully recover um, you know I remember the podiatrist saying it'll take at least 12 weeks and I would say it took a lot longer than that um, <laughs> But, and I do still wear the orthotics in my running shoes, but not in my other shoes now. Uh, and I could probably go out for a run without them. But I, I sort of notice little twinges in my feet when I don't. So 
um, you know, I think I, I've taken a holistic view and uh, there's lots of things I do. And, and if I could just add one other easy action point, I would say having plantar fasciitis was painful and debilitating. And I'd say don't ignore the signs. Take professional advice. Pick up the phone. Book an appointment with your physio or podiatrist. Don't leave it. I mean, I, I couldn't do it, but I would say in normal circumstances, don't leave it. First signs, get some advice, take corrective action and um, do everything that you need to do to to resolve the situation. Great. Thanks. And I think that is really good advice. You know, just picking up the phone and speaking to a professional about it. Is, it and it's an easy step to take, but it could really set you on the journey um, to recovery and efficient recovery rather than it, it going on and on. So thank you re- very much, Aileen, for that uh, simple but really powerful piece of advice. So we are just about at the end of this episode for today. So just before we go, Aileen, could you take us through your key takeaways? Yeah, of course, Karen. Um, So as we said earlier, plantar fasciitis accounts for about 10% of all running related injuries, Uh, usually develops with repeated impact or pressure, which over time can cause damage to the tissue in the foot. Uh, There is an inflammatory component of plantar fasciitis, which is a result of this prolonged loading on the tissue, which perpetuates the inflammatory cycle. Um, I'll talk you through some of the main risk factors and the triggers. So the risk factors are considered to be running, having high foot arches, excessive foot pronation, weak plantar flexor muscles, obesity, and prolonged standing or walking. And the main triggers of plantar fasciitis are changing changing your activity. So maybe a new type of exercise activity or a change of intensity, having tight calf muscles or an Achilles injury, wearing new or old footwear, um, a change in weight gain or being overweight, and then also chronic inflammation, which might be driving the ongoing symptoms of plantar fasciitis. So it is a chronic condition which takes time to resolve. So if you're experiencing plantar fasciitis, you might wish to consider your inflammatory status and how this is contributing. Um, Following an anti-inflammatory food plan may help you and that may help you reduce the systemic chronic inflammation and that could support your recovery. The nutrients that we've mentioned today, which uh, would be important to include in an anti-inflammatory food plan, include carotenoid foods, uh, cruciferous vegetables and anthocyanins, which are found in a variety of berries, and also consider your omega-3 fatty acid status, especially uh, EPA, DHA and DPA. And if you've got any signs of plantar fasciitis, remember, uh, consult with a professional, uh, pick up the phone, book an appointment with a physio or a podiatrist. Remember to reduce or, or rest from run training and add in some of the nutritional strategies that we've suggested. And and I think that's a a roundup of the key takeaways, Karen. Great. Thank you, Aileen. Some great great, uh, tips there and um, sort of uh, important takeaways. So thank you for this whole discussion um, and some great insights into really quite a common problem um, that is often experienced by runners. And um, remember, everyone, don't let nutrition be the limiting factor in your running performance. 
Well, this brings us to the end of another episode of She Runs, Eats, Performs, brought to you by Runners Health Hub, helping female runners to be fitter, faster and stronger. We really hope you've enjoyed listening and you'll join us again soon. In the meantime, we'd be so grateful if you check us out on iTunes and leave a review. And once again, thanks for listening and do let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Bye for now. We'd like to introduce you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear for Women's Changing Bodies, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. We think they have everything a female runner needs. First of all, they are high compression to support your legs and bum. They have a deep waistband so they stay up and they don't move about when you run. There's a handy left pocket for your phone and a zip pocket on the waistband, which is great for your cards or a key. They also have a hidden tracker pocket for storing a GPS tracking device, and this is a unique safety feature. All Amazing Jane designs, including tanks and tops, are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. Karen and I have been trialing wearing their range for a few months, and we can happily recommend them. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners' special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Thanks again to Amazing Jane Activewear for being our show sponsor and for sharing discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases. <music>